This is The Coffin Affair, A Miscarriage of Justice Revisited, Episode 6, Aftermath, and I'm Catherine Campbell. On Friday, February 10th, 1956, at Montreal's Bordeaux Jail, Wilbert Coffin was hanged for the murder of Richard Lindsay. Many factors in the case suggest that this was a miscarriage of justice, including ineffective assistance of counsel, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and a very strong political influence. In this final episode of the podcast, we'll look at what happened following Wilbert Coffin's hanging. The case did not die with him, and a number of other suspects have emerged over the years. We'll talk about the role of Jacques Hébert, who as a journalist loudly conveyed to the world that Wilbert was innocent and was a victim of a miscarriage of justice. We'll examine the Brossard Commission, a commission that was called by the Quebec government in 1964 to examine what happened during the Coffin Affair. Finally, we'll discuss a number of other unexplained events that occurred following Wilbert's hanging, all that raised questions as to whether or not he was the actual perpetrator. We're first going to talk about media attention, and when Wilbert's hanging occurred, there was a hue and cry in the media, but specifically in the English media, and more specifically outside of Quebec. Inside Quebec, the press failed to raise any real questions as to whether the courts got it right and whether the wrong man had been hanged. In fact, this quote from the editor-in-chief of L'Action Catholique sums up the attitude of many, and I quote, Humanely speaking, we can rest assured that the accused was guilty of the murder of Mr. R. Lindsay. This is the reason why his last appeals for clemency were turned down, end quote. It later states that commuting the death sentence to life imprisonment could not be done as, quote, it would have had regrettable effects on our tourist publicity, end quote. Within Quebec, it was really only the newspaper Vray, edited by none other than writer and future Senator Jacques Hébert, that questioned this verdict. Almost from the beginning, Hébert believed that Wilbert's case was the biggest legal miscarriage of justice in Quebec history. He was a great crusader for human rights and a strong opponent of Maurice Duplessis, the premier who seems to have been behind the rush to convict Wilbert Coffin. Some of the coverage of the case in Bray contained headlines such as, Coffin, we have his death on our conscience, or Coffin was assassinated, or we are convinced of Coffin's innocence, or finally, the two Americans in the mystery jeep were guilty. In one edition of Bray, Jean Vincent's stirring editorial during that time fundamentally questioned the administration of justice in Canada and Duplessis' role in the Coffin affair. He stated, quote, How could the federal authorities let a man be hanged when two judges of the Supreme Court were recommending a new trial, when Coffin, despite three attempts to appeal, was tried only once, and when the verdict, despite the obvious doubt, despite the lack of direct evidence, was returned in half an hour? Finally, a last question. To what can Mr. Duplessis' relentlessness be attributed? Why this appeal against the advisory opinion of the Supreme Court? Why was Coffin refused the authorization to marry in a society which claims to be charitable and Christian, but which does not hesitate to brand newborn infants as illegitimate? Was it because the police had to be right? Because Coffin was living in sin? Because the consequences of a more human judgment would have harmed the tourist industry? 
because Coffin's escape showed up the bad organization of the Quebec City Jail, end quote. The coverage of the Wilbert Coffin affair in Vray was somewhat sensationalistic, but it was extensive. It questioned the mysterious death of Wilbert's friend Bill Baker, which we'll talk about in a minute, demanding the exhumation of his body. It raised questions regarding the disappearance of the note allegedly written by one of the three victims, which could have exonerated Wilbert. It asserted that he could really only have spent $70, not the $600 alleged by the Crown, and that the firearm that killed the hunters could have been a revolver, not a rifle. Jacques Hébert's first book, Coffin était innocent, Coffin was innocent, was published in 1958. It was an instant bestseller in Quebec. In 1963, Hébert published a second book that was far more controversial entitled J'accuse les assassins de Coffin. I accuse Coffin's assassins. In this book, he strongly criticized a number of people who'd been involved in Wilbert's arrest, conviction, sentencing, and hanging, including some we've discussed already in this podcast. Quebec Premier Maurice Duplessis, Solicitor General Antoine Rivard, Crown Prosecutors Noël Dorion, Paul Michelon and Georges-Étienne Blanchard, and Police Captain Alphonse Matt. He outlined what he thought was a plot against Wilbert Coffin to convict him for the murder of the three American hunters. Partially in response to Hebert's accusations and pressures from other human rights advocates, on January 8, 1964, the Attorney General of Quebec, René Hamel, announced the establishment of a Royal Commission of Inquiry. The Brossard Commission of 1964 was mandated to investigate the actions of everyone involved in the case that led to Wilbert Coffin's execution. All told, the commission lasted four and a half months, heard 214 witnesses and amassed more than 400 exhibits. Given that part of the commission's mandate was to inquire into police conduct, Judge Brassard had named Captain Jean-Charles Van Hoot as lead investigator, who happened to be one of the three original police officers involved in the Coffin investigation. So Van Hoot was essentially investigating himself, his colleague Raoul Silvois, and his boss, Inspector General Alphonse Matt. The conflict of interest was obvious. Wilbert's appeal lawyer, Maître François Gravel, objected to it immediately, yet Judge Brassard dismissed this objection. Dr. Ryu, who had headed the coroner's inquest in the Gaspé in 1953, testified at the Brassard Commission and later disclosed he was quote, disgusted to see that everything was decided in advance, end quote. In his view, the commission was a whitewash to find the police blameless. He described the commission as une vraie comédie. Further, he said he had kept his mouth closed as he did not want to be held in contempt of court. Donald Coffin, Wilbert's younger brother, relayed what many people in the Gaspé thought about Wilbert's conviction and hanging. There is nothing this inquiry can do. Wilbert is dead. It won't make any difference in the Gaspé. Nobody there believes he killed the Americans. They don't treat me or our family any different now than they ever did. Bill wasn't guilty and we all knew it. Toyon knew it. Everybody knew it but those outside policemen. The final 719-page report was published on December 3, 1964, 
and Judge Broussard ultimately absolved the courts and the police of any untoward attitudes or actions or procedures. At the same time, he vigorously denounced Jacques Hébert. Broussard stated that Wilbert Coffin was guilty, and Jacques Hébert's second book contained false allegations. The commission tore apart Hébert's arguments and concluded that Wilbert's conviction and execution was no mistake. Judge Broussard attacked reporters and newspapers from Quebec, Toronto, and Altoona, Pennsylvania for not letting the case die after justice had taken its course. He linked all of the Wilbert Coffin press to a movement for the abolition of the death penalty in Canada. And that's not entirely incorrect, as Hébert was a strong opponent of the death penalty. Judge Roger Brassard made the following statements, quote, If ever civil liberties are suffocated by a dictatorship of the right or left in this country, this will be due in large part to the abuses committed by a minute but very active minority of journalists. If some people would only stop writing books, the matter would no longer be the object of public discussions, end quote. While the Brassard Commission failed to acknowledge that any misconduct occurred during the Coffin investigation, it did highlight the Quebec government's annoyance at the journalists who continued to draw attention to the case. This escalated further when Hebert published his third book, The Coffin Affair, after Judge Brassard's report was released. Several months later, the Solicitor General for Quebec at the time, the Honorable Claude Wagner, announced that Jacques Hébert had written statements in his book that constituted contempt of court and would be charging him with defamation. To defend him in court, Hébert sought the help of his friend and law professor, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. At that time, Trudeau was the editor of Cité Libre, which was an influential political journal opposed to the conservative politics of Duplessis, and he agreed to act as Hébert's defense counsel. Despite Trudeau's best efforts, Chief Justice George Challies of the Quebec Superior Court found Hébert guilty and sentenced him to 30 days in jail and a $3,000 fine. Trudeau filed an appeal, but Hébert was immediately taken to the Quebec City prison where he spent three days. Ironically, this was the same jail where Wilbert had been incarcerated for a time. And as a result, Hébert published another book, Blasting the Prison Conditions and the Administration of Justice. In 1966, the Quebec Court of Appeal threw out Jacques Hébert's conviction. And following a distinguished career as an activist, journalist, and author, Jacques Hébert was appointed to the Senate in 1983. He served until the mandatory age of 75 and died in 2007. Upon his death, his archives were donated to the Gaspé Library, given his long connection to the area. now talk about media attention that's occurring right now. And over the past 50 plus years, many have re-examined what happened in the Gaspé Woods in 1953. Several books and films in French and English have been released over the years, and the case continues to retain public interest. Wilbert Coffin's family have always believed in his innocence. His sister, Marie Coffin Stewart, who's now 92 years old, has spent many years trying to clear her brother's name. She stated in 2007, quote, It has had a terrible impact on my family. We were always so outgoing and happy. It changed an awful lot in our lives, end quote. 
She believes that her brother could never have killed anyone and that the government had something to hide by not reopening the case. Many of Marie's fellow Gaspesians still believe that Wilbert Coffin was wrongly convicted and hanged. On August 15, 2006, 50 years after his death, over 150 supporters and four generations of the Coffin family gathered at St. Andrew's Church in New York Center where Wilbert's buried to commemorate his death. Shortly following this commemoration, the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, called AIDWIC then, it's now called Innocence Canada, assigned a team of lawyers to study the possibility of Wilbert Coffin's conviction being overturned. Since the case happened over 50 years ago, this wasn't an easy task. Elizabeth Widner worked on Coffin's case from 2006 to 2019, and this is how she described it, quote, We're largely left with only documentary evidence, which makes this case far different from other cases that we've worked on. We've now been able to see that there were many, many sightings that appeared to be credible of these two other Americans in the bush with a jeep. The difficulty is we can't actually speak to the people who saw them because they're deceased, but we're trying to assemble all the material to see if there's a clearer picture that would emerge around that. End quote. More than 60 years after his execution, efforts to clear Wilbert Coffin's name continue. Innocence Canada lawyers are still working on his case, having assigned it to James Lockyer in 2021, a renowned criminal defense attorney responsible for overturning a number of significant wrongful convictions in Canada. Moreover, Michael Rooney, a lawyer living in Washington, D.C., and former Gaspesian, who we interviewed for this podcast, began writing a book about the case in 2020. Rooney's theory is that the slayings were committed in Canada to avoid suspicion at home in the U.S. and stem from illicit financial dealings. Now, there are a number of other possible suspects whose names have been raised and rejected over the years, and I want to talk about some of them. The first one is Gabriel Thompson. Now, he was an Indigenous person from the Mohawk Confederacy of Aquasasne in St. Regis, Quebec. And he had a number of aliases, including Frank Abbott, Frank Gilbert, Francois Gilbert, Michael Eugène Bonaparte, Francois Gilbert Thompson. And he also had a history of trouble with the law in Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, BC, and Montana. And he'd served eight years in a prison in New York for grand larceny. He was deported from Florida back to Canada in 1939 at 16 years old, and he served time in both Canadian and American militaries and was quite intelligent but suffered from mental illness. Now, regarding this case, Thompson was arrested in Miami in November 1958 on suspicion of stealing from a yacht. While in police custody, he confessed to the 1953 murders in the Gas Bay. He told the police that he had killed Eugene Lindsay and his son Richard from Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. Thompson also implicated a man named Johnny Green in the murders, but Green evaded arrest by the Miami police. Now, there were a number of factors that made his story plausible. The evidence indicated more than one killer, and Thompson accurately described Camp 24. He said he ordered Eugene Lindsay to give him his money, and then he killed him with his rifle. He then heard a shot, and he joined Green, and he found Richard Lindsay alive. 
and he said that he then fired a few shots at Richard Lindsay. Now remember, there were two bullet holes in Richard's shirt. Thompson also said that he and Green then dismembered the bodies with a hunting knife. Recall that Eugene Lindsay's skull was never found and that Richard Lindsay's body had been cut in three parts. He described throwing much of the hunter's belongings along Thomasbrook Road from their jeep as it was moving. His story matches many of the factors in the case, even though he came forward five years after the murder. But at that time, the director of the Quebec Provincial Police, Colonel Lambert, and the Attorney General, Charles-Edouard Cantin, attempted to discredit much of Thompson's confession in the press. They never bothered to go to Miami to interview him or investigate what he was telling the police about the Gas Bay murders, and they said he was a lunatic or an imposter. But the Miami police chief, Walter E. Headley, told the press, quote, either Thompson is telling the truth or he's the most clever liar I know, end quote. Psychologists who interviewed him, Warren D. Holmes, also stated, quote, Thompson doesn't give the impression of being a lunatic. He was questioned and cross-questioned and never contradicted himself, end quote. After Thompson had been in custody for several days, the Quebec Provincial Police sent a series of 20 questions by phone to the Miami police to ask him. Thompson's responses to those questions were a close match to what's known about what happened in the woods. Believing that the police and the attorney general's office were trying to bury this information, writer Jacques Hébert went to Miami himself to interview Thompson. But by the time he arrived, Thompson had recanted his confession and passed a lie detector test. Regardless, Hébert spoke to Thompson himself anyway, who told him that by confessing, he had hoped to return to Canada. He seemed to believe that a second person could not be tried for a crime once another had been executed for the same crime. The Miami police received a phone call from Thompson's mother, who disclosed that during the time of the murders, he was committed to a sanatorium in Brockville, Ontario. For the Quebec authorities, that closed the case. In Miami, however, after the police spoke with the authorities at the sanatorium, it was revealed that Thompson was actually only a resident there the year before the murders took place. In his book, Hebert effectively intimated that somebody convinced Thompson to change his mind. He believed that someone behind the scenes was trying to shut Thompson up to avoid the scandal that might ensue if it became known that an innocent man was hanged under Duplessis' watch. On February 3, 1959, Thompson was flown back to Toronto and turned over to the RCMP. Afterwards, he vanished and only resurfaced at the Brossard Commission in 1964. The second possible suspect is Jean-Philippe Cabot. Now, around the 50th anniversary of Wilbert's hanging, the name of this local Gaspésien from Barachois was raised as being the possible perpetrator of the murder of the American hunters. Jean-Philippe Cabot died in 1998, but we know that he had a less than stellar reputation in the area. His son, Jean-Gabriel, claimed that his father killed Eugene Lindsay and that he himself, at the age of eight years old, had witnessed it, watching from the top of the truck. The alleged motive for the elder Cabot to have killed Eugene Lindsay was that Eugene had been flirting with Cabot's wife at the hotel. Some of Cabot's family seemed to believe this story. One written account comes from Roger Gervais, the former partner of Angeline, 
Jean-Gabriel's sister. According to Gervais, in 1991, Angeline, Jean-Gabriel, and another sister, Micheline, gathered in her apartment in Saint-Laurent when Jean-Gabriel revealed what he knew. Apparently, their father had learned from an American couple summering in Barishois that Eugene Lindsay was a loan shark and carried large amounts of cash. So he sought him out in the bush, which he knew like the back of his hand. This provided a further motive for murder. This is taken from a letter written to the Department of Justice by Gervais. Cabot drove into the bush where he encountered Lindsay's truck, picked a fight with the American, grabbed his rifle and clubbed him with it before running over him with his truck several times and robbing the corpse. At a second sight, Cabot shot Eugene's son, Richard Lindsay, once and family friend Frederick Clark twice in the back, end quote. This information was taken to the Quebec Justice Department in 1992, but Jean-Gabriel would not make a statement incriminating his father. Jean-Gabriel Cabot died in May 2005 and never repeated the story to the authorities. His sisters, Angeline and Micheline, have refused to speak of it to the press or the authorities. There is no proof that this actually happened. However, some local Gaspesians do believe Cabot to have been the perpetrator of the murder of the three hunters. Several of them told us of neglect and abuse of the children in his home. Albert Patterson, the fishing guide, told us in this excerpt he refers to the son as Hugo, but he means Jean-Gabriel. Because he was a very, very bad man. Very, very bad. Uh, welfare, it wasn't welfare in those days, but it stepped in and took all the kids away from them. They were scattered all over, all over the province. Some were in, in Montreal, some were in Quebec, and um, except for Hugo, which was the son that was a little bit retarded, and Hugo was the one that went to his sisters and told them that his father had killed the Americans. And it was a mining town about 100 miles in Jinfram. And he worked there in a, in, a, in a restaurant. And finally he went and confessed to his sister. And she broke the story, but the police wouldn't follow it. Then the police actually went up Shepherdville, went up to Shepherdville to interview him. By this time, he had joined the uh, Pentecostal church. Okay. And he was preaching. He was working in the restaurant, probably doing dishes or something. He was preaching and all this kind of stuff and talking about God. And they, wouldn't, they, thought, they thought he was a nut. Eventually he wound up down around seven ounces and he died in the hospital there a few years ago. But old... He had special needs though, you said? Who? This huge... Oh, he, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, real, uh, real, real bright. Okay. But he claims that he sat on the roof of one of the cabins and watched his father shoot two of the Americans. And if you follow the ballistic reports and everything else, it's quite possible because the bullets went in but never come out. And I'm sure Wilbur Coffin shot them, he would shoot them with a high powered rifle. The bullet would go right through you. Another person of interest is a man named Bill Baker. Many locals talked to us about him, and not because they thought he had perpetrated the murders, but possibly because he may have known something about it. He was Wilbert's very good friend. Two weeks after Wilbert Coffin's funeral, Bill Baker, who owned the Ash Inn in the Gas Bay, died at age 42. The official report was that he died of a massive heart attack. Now, some people from the Gas Bay area disagreed with the official version and believed he killed himself with a 22 rifle. In fact, in 2004, 
Dr. Lionel Ryu, the coroner from the original inquest, declared that Baker's death was a suicide as he could not live with what had happened to Wilbert. Other rumors were that the police had poisoned Baker's whiskey. Two weeks after his death, Francois Gravel, at that point Wilbert's appeals lawyer, demanded that Baker's body be disinterred and an autopsy performed. However, Baker's widow objected and was supported by the Deputy Attorney General of Quebec, at that time, Charles-Edouard Cantin. Alton Price notes, given their close friendship, it's easy to speculate that Baker's death had something to do with Wilbert Coffin. But that's just it. It's speculation. The final possible suspects are the two Americans in the Jeep. Now, a lot has been made about the two Americans in the Jeep that Wilbert claims to have seen with Eugene Lindsay back at Camp 24 when he met them on June 9, 1953. As we've learned in previous episodes, not only did Wilbert see these individuals, but at least five other people saw them in the region about the time of the murders. The Jeep was never found or identified, but many people today believe they were the real perpetrators of this crime. In particular, Michael Rooney, former Gaspesian and now American lawyer, who's writing a book about the Coffin Affair, has a fairly solid theory about their involvement. At Camp 24, they found the remains of an old campfire with three liquor bottles. One of the bottles, we know, was bought by Frederick Clark for Eugene Lindsay. It was a bottle of Seagram Seven Crown Whiskey. Yeah. And, and then two unmarked liquor bottles. My theory is that, like I said, first they went to Camp 24, dropped Eugene Lindsay off, then they went to Camp 26 under the pretext of dropping the two boys off shot them there, came back, and met back up with Eugene Lindsay, who obviously had no idea that his son and his son's friend were just murdered. And then they drank together for a while. They got Eugene Lindsay drunk. That's how they got him away from his rifle. I think they knew they were, they would have been able to identify two people. Moreover, following the murders, Frederick Clark's camera was found at the campsite. A picture developed from it shows four men in raincoats moving objects from one car to another. While two of the men have been identified as Richard Lindsay and Frederick Clark, the identification of the other two men remains a mystery. Some speculate these may be the men in the Jeep and the actual murderers. Shortly following Wilbert's hanging, there were two extrajudicial efforts to address what was looking like a miscarriage of justice. One was the Wilbert Coffin Rehabilitation Committee, and the other was the work done by the Court of Last Resort. Now, the Wilbert Coffin Rehabilitation Committee was formed immediately after his execution, and it was made up of a number of powerful individuals who were troubled about what had occurred and questioned the fairness of Wilbert's trial and the certainty of his guilt. As a consequence, a meeting was organized and a committee was established. It had eight members, including Wilbert's appeals lawyers, Francois Gravel and Arthur Maloney, Wilbert's friend and confidant, Reverend Sam Pollard, some professors and journalists, and author John E. Beliveau. This group of English-speaking Canadians attracted derogatory comments from the press from Duplessis and Prosecutor Michelin. 
The committee had a hard task, given that all of the members work full-time elsewhere and were in no way supported in their efforts by the Quebec police, government, or press. Following several months of meetings and discussions, they disbanded. The Court of Last Resort was an effort during the 1950s in the United States. Earl Stanley Gardner was an internationally known mystery writer and Henry Steger, a magazine publisher. Together they established a voluntary association aimed at addressing the flaws in the American criminal justice system. This so-called court's main objective was to bring public attention to the weaknesses of the judicial system. And in 1956, the court took an interest in Wilbert's case, and after examining Gravel's files, they determined that new evidence had been uncovered pointing to Wilbert's innocence. While Coffin had already been executed at this point, Gardner believed that uncovering what went wrong with the case could have an impact on the practice of criminal law. In March of 1956, a request was made to preserve the exhibits from the trial, but just weeks later, after reports of the Court of Last Resort's interest in the case, the trial exhibits vanished. Without this evidence, nothing could be done, and the Court of Last Resort dropped the file. So I want to talk now about some political judicial issues around this case. And in the spring of 2006, almost exactly 50 years following the hanging of Wilbert Coffin, Renal Blay, a Bloc Québécois opposition member of the House of Commons for Gaspésie et la Madeleine, along with justice critic Réal Menard, made a call for ministerial review of Coffin's case. Blay stated, Mr. Speaker, 50 years have passed since Mr. Wilbert Coffin was hanged, convicted of the murders of three American hunters in Gaspésie. Mr. Coffin's family has maintained his innocence since that time, pointing out that the Crown never produced any direct evidence during the trial and that political interference was a factor. After many years of waiting, the Federal Justice Minister has finally examined the Coffin family's legitimate request to reopen the file. Mary Coffin Stewart, Wilbert Coffin's sister, Jim Coffin, Wilbert Coffin's son, and many other family members are here in Ottawa today. I would like to assure them that they are not alone in their quest for justice. They are very honorable and courageous for taking on this important challenge. The Bloc Québécois is proud and honored to support the Coffin family in its request for a judicial review concerning Wilbert Coffin. Approximately one year later, in February of 2007, the House of Commons unanimously adopted a motion calling for a swift investigation into Coffin's execution. All four political parties supported what was largely a symbolic gesture as no real action, legal or otherwise, followed. The Criminal Conviction Review Group has also been involved in Coffin's case. Now, the CCRG, as it's called, is a group of lawyers who work through the Department of Justice to address wrongful convictions. They investigate possible miscarriages of justice, and then they make recommendations to the minister, who can then order a new trial, an appeal, or refer the case to a higher court on a question. In order for the minister to find that a miscarriage of justice likely occurred, the individual has to have exhausted all their appeals and present new and significant information that was not previously considered by the courts, that's reasonably capable of belief, 
and that could have had an impact on the verdict if it had been presented at trial. So in October 2006, over 50 years after Wilbur Coffin's hanging, the CCRG agreed to investigate his case, making it the first one they'd taken on posthumously. This was due in part to the efforts of Alton Price, the author, Wilbert's family, other Gaspesians, and the work of Innocence Canada. Now, 16 years later, it's looking less and less likely that the investigation will lead to a new trial or a new court of appeal hearing. Furthermore, the Canadian government has never granted a posthumous pardon. Now, I think it's reasonable to assume that Wilbert Coffin's case has had an impact on capital punishment in Canada. And it may have played a role in helping to abolish it, despite the fact that attempts to prove his innocence have failed. The last execution in Canada took place 60 years ago in 1962, but the death penalty was abolished in 1976 following a free vote in Parliament, which occurred when Pierre Elliott Trudeau was Prime Minister of Canada. Many people believe that Trudeau was strongly opposed to the death penalty in part due to the influence of Coffin's case and his involvement with his friend Jacques Hébert. So all death sentences imposed between the years 1967 and 1976 were commuted to life imprisonment. And in 1976, a legislative amendment to the criminal code abolished the death penalty for all but military offenses, replacing it with mandatory life sentences for murder with parole eligibility at 25 years for premeditated killing. All references to the death penalty were finally removed from the National Defense Act in 1998. And from time to time, the issue of capital punishment resurfaces, and it was raised in Parliament as recently as 1987, where it was defeated on a free vote of 148 to 127. like to talk about a number of events now. While they're likely random, they seem to have cast some kind of shadow on what happened to Wilbert Coffin. Now, Henri Doyon was a local member of the Quebec Provincial Police. We've talked about him several times throughout this podcast. He was stationed in the Gas Bay, and he was involved in the search for the missing hunters and the subsequent murder investigation from the very beginning. But early on, he was removed from a direct involvement in the case and replaced by the high-ranking, more senior members of the force from the Quebec City headquarters. It seemed that Sergeant Doyon was quickly taken off the case, in part because he had become, quote, too much like a Gaspesian and too prone to protect the coffin, end quote. And that's Alton Price quoting Judge Brassard from the Brassard Inquiry. After the trial, Doyon was demoted to constable and transferred to Quebec City. He was under considerable stress and later fired in 1961 after 24 years of service and he was not allowed to collect his pension. Many people believe the firing was because he had always supported Wilbert's innocence. In Jacques Hébert's view, Doyon was another victim of the Coffin case. In fact, Maitre Gavel represented Doyon in a suit seeking $50,000 for wrongful dismissal but ultimately, he was unsuccessful. Dion's own daughter, Henriette Dion, also told the Montreal Gazette that he was haunted by the case and stated, quote, 
they would have done better to hang Doyon too instead of killing him little by little, end quote. Dr. Ryu, coroner and local doctor, said that Dion was martyred because he defended Wilbert. He brought out truths they didn't want to admit. Dr. Ryu described how the Sûreté de Québec treated Dion very poorly and how, quote, they martyred him, annihilated him, because he knew Coffin personally, end quote. Another curious issue had to do with the victim's citizenship. There were many people who believed that the American citizenship of the victims played a huge role in Wilbert's conviction and hanging for the murder of Richard Lindsay. In an interview televised in the early 1960s, Wilbert's former lawyer, Raymond Marr, said if the victims had been Canadian, Wilbert would have been acquitted with the same evidence. He also stated that tourism and public opinion were the reasons for the conviction. In fact, a murder that took place that same summer in New Richmond on the Gaspé coast involving eyewitnesses, a home invasion, and a savage beating resulted in a conviction where the accused received a 30-year sentence for manslaughter. There was far more direct evidence in that case, but this man didn't receive the death sentence. Another curious issue, promotions. Following Wilbert's trial and execution, a number of the officials who'd been involved in the case were promoted. Captain Alphonse Matt and Captain Sirois were promoted within the ranks of the then Quebec Provincial Police. Crown Attorney Noel Dahillon, the chief prosecutor on the case, entered federal politics and became a cabinet minister in the Diefenbaking government. Paul Miquelon, also a prosecutor, was named to the Superior Court of Quebec. The same year as the trial, Raymond Marr, Wilbert's trial lawyer, was promoted by Duplessis to be the legal advisor to the Régie de Loyer de Québec. And finally, I want to talk about Clément Fortin's book. Not everyone who investigates the Coffin case comes to the same conclusion. Clément Fortin, who's a retired lawyer and law professor at the Université de Sherbrooke, published a book entitled L'Affaire Coffin, Une Supercherie, which translates to The Coffin Affair, A Deception, 2007. In this book, described as a docu-fiction, Fortin comes to the conclusion that Wilbert was well-judged and that the trial proceeded without irregularity. Despite these findings, in 2014, Fortin supported a request to the Minister of Justice to grant Wilbert Coffin a pardon. He told the press that if Wilbert's alcohol consumption problems had been known at trial, he might well have been found guilty of manslaughter and his life spared. Fortin further believed that Wilbert's five years in the military in World War II likely contributed his having what we now might call post-traumatic stress disorder, something that wasn't recognized at that time. In his book, Alton Price asks a very important question. Why was Wilbert Coffin pursued to his death with such tenacity on so little evidence and with such disregard for reasonable doubt or human rights? Throughout this podcast, we've attempted to answer that question. And what we found was that many of the factors that research has established contribute to wrongful conviction were present in Coffin's case. Tunnel vision, police and prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective assistance of counsel, judicial misconduct, jailhouse informants, and substantial political influence. 
Edward Greenspan, one of Canada's top defense counsel, had this to say in 2006, quote, It symbolizes for me that the criminal trial process is often a very frail and fragile thing. So much of it depends on good lawyers, honest cops, fair prosecutors, and top judges. A lot depends on the frailties of human beings who can't identify witnesses or remember dates. This case is the greatest illustration how everything can go wrong in a case and nobody at trial sees it. The criminal justice system makes mistakes. This case is the greatest illustration in Canadian history of the truth of that." End quote. Despite the fact that the murders, the trial, and the hanging occurred over 60 years ago, Wilbur Coffin's story just won't go away. To this day, in the gas bay, people remember him, remember what happened, and continue to believe in his innocence. We'll give Judy Reader, Wilbert's niece, the last word. There is no, no, there was never, ever any question of his innocence with us, with any of the family, actually. And it, all you've got to do is look at any comments that people have put, and it's the same thing with nearly everybody you come in contact with. In fact, I have not met or heard one single person in all of my life that has said, yes, he's guilty. Uh, everybody that we've had contact with, everybody in our family, believes he was innocent. And I think that's why this whole case has continued to go on and on and on all the time. In a cold, lonely prison, one His convicted prospector to his mother did arrive. I soon will leave you my time, it ain't long. But remember, mother, I never did wrong. The jury found me guilty, the judge said I must pay. Of a crime I'm guilty, that's what they say. Although this will be my last day, I am not guilty, that's all I can say. Last night I lay sleeping on a pillow of stone. I dreamed of you. Mom and your folks back home Of those hills I roam When I was a boy To walk by the seashore Was my pride and joy I'm sorry for the heartaches That I caused to you To my sweet loving wife So kind and so true for the plans that we made are all broken apart And I'm sorry for the way now that we have to part It's to my son Jimmy I leave all I own And a little log hut he used to call home For never again would him will I play as 
we used to do with those sweet yesterdays. So it's goodbye, mother, farewell to the rest. To the old Gatsby Coast, the place I love best. For those hills and valleys, I'll prospect no more. I'll stake out my claim now on some other shore. Oh, the parson is with me, so I kneel and I'll pray. For I know we'll all be together someday. Where God will be the judge and over all he do see. And I know he'll set your convicted son. A number of sources were used for this podcast and a number of people interviewed. While far too long to list here, all of that information is available on the website at www.wilbertcoffinaffair.com.